Well, the topic this afternoon is the second of the I Am statements in John's Gospel. And you may recall that there are seven I Am statements that were articulated by our Savior. He's speaking of himself, and you know that there were times when our Savior would say, who do people say that I am? And of course you have Peter's great confession in Matthew 16. In this case, these are statements that the Lord Jesus is making himself. And um, in John's Gospel, uh, John has a very distinctive way of writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's somewhat thematic, and there are uh, certain themes that, uh, that are very important for us to understand if we would properly grasp what Jesus is saying about himself. And the theme here is light and darkness. And so we'll explore that as we move along through our study this afternoon. But uh, one commentator has described John's gospel, and I think virtually all would agree with this, is it's one of the simplest and yet one of the most profound of all the of the Gospels, in all of Scripture, actually. But it's, it's simple. The message is simple. John wrote this, John 20, 30, and 31, is really the theme of the, of the Gospel. These things I've written so that you might believe, and that believing you might have eternal life. And so what happens in John's Gospel, he's, un, he's unfolding who Jesus is. And these I Am statements are very important ways for us to grasp our Savior and, and His person and His work. The, uh, this is the second of the I am statements, and um, J.C. Ryle, just in terms of an overall um, scope of what we're looking at today, uh, the, what he makes the point, and this is from his very helpful series of uh, messages on expository thoughts on the Gospels. Uh, it's it's a, a good resource uh, published by Banner of Truth. But um, this is a statement that the Lord makes of himself, I am the light of the world, and it's in John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, to be specific. What he says is, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light, of life. And the context is everything in understanding this statement. Uh, What's the context? The, The spiritual context is darkness. The spiritual context is opposition and unbelief. And once we grasp that, uh, we'll see how poignant this statement is that Jesus makes about himself, that he is the light of the world. But I think the comment that J.C. Rowell made in the 1800s is certainly as apt today as it was when he wrote that the vast majority of men neither see nor understand the condition of their souls. I think that, that, that certainly pervades our time, the true nature of God or the reality of the world to come. That's really true. When we speak at, in today, when we listen to conversations today, when we look at the news, when we sort of discuss things with our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, uh, relatives, whatever the case may be, all of the above, it's very obvious that there's a, a spirit of darkness in this world and that people do not understand who they are before a holy God. They do not understand the condition of their soul and how perilous their condition really is. But there are three points that uh, J.C. Rowell makes, and I'll just touch on these briefly in in our notes, but they start with a P, and the first one is proclamation. First of all, the Lord Jesus makes this very direct statement in John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. He's saying I am the only remedy for the dire condition of men's souls. There is hope in none other. 
And he speaks this message of salvation in the midst of a, of a dark world, in the midst of an unbelieving world, in the midst of a world that is full of opposition. It's an adversarial environment that he's in. And when John writes of the Jews, he's not being anti-Semitic, he's not pointing out any particular group, but he uses this expression, the Jews, particularly to address the religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priest, etc. There was a, a cabal, so to speak, that was against the Lord Jesus. And when he uses that expression, the Jews, he's referring not just to the seed of Abraham, but to a particular segment of the seed of Abraham that was dead set against Jesus Christ and would do anything and everything within their power to see him undone. And ultimately, from a human standpoint, they did, but they lost, obviously. That was all for, for ordained of the Lord. Top of page two, we talked about the proclamation, but the problem is that there are false lights uh, on every side that attempt to draw our attention. These are decoys. These are counterfeit lights. These are intended to draw our attention away from the true light. And this is the environment that Jesus was dealing with. And we'll see this in particular when we look at um, John 10, and we see Jesus describing himself as the door and as the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, there are those who are pretenders, there are those who are counterfeit leaders, there are those who are spiritual decoys, and their intent is evil. Um, the degree to which they understand their evil is another subject, but they are clearly working for the wrong side. But uh, the, it's, there are all sorts of false lights, and Jesus is the only true light that has come into the world, and he makes that statement, I am the light of the world, not a light, not another light, but the light, a singular light, and he came into the world to not only to reveal himself, which he does, uh, and the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the express image of God, and John's prologue describes uh, the Lord Jesus as uh, being the light, uh, and we'll, we'll trace that as we go along. But uh, the problem is there are all sorts of counterfeits and, and adversarial forces in the world. Then the second point that, that uh, J.C. Raw makes, another P, is the promise. The promise is that the one who follows him, and that's, that's another word for belief. When, when we talked about the bread of the, of, of the life, uh, there were different words. Come to him is, a, is, a mean, is a, an expression for belief. To come to him is the same as to believe. To follow him is the same as to believe. To follow Christ, and we, we live in a world where the expression Christ followers, and that's, that's a somewhat ambiguous expression. There are those who, who don't really understand what that means. When we, when, to, to follow Jesus because he is an ethical leader, someone might say, I'm following the ethical example of Jesus. That doesn't mean the biblical following Christ. To follow Christ is to surrender ourselves to him. And we talked about this last time, the essence of faith is to completely abandon every other hope that you have, to forsake every other hope that you have, and to cling single-handedly to Christ as your only hope, and the hope, and the sure and certain hope. And, and so Jesus is saying that, that to follow him is exactly that. It's to abandon all the other false lights, all the other false hopes, and to submit yourself completely to him uh, as, as his is the provider of salvation is the one who's come to deliver us from our sins. 
And so he goes on, the promise is the one who follows him will what? Will not walk in darkness. And there's several aspects to that. One aspect would be that they will no longer be in the domain of darkness. And the second is that they won't walk in darkness, that they won't conduct themselves as they once did. And, and Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. That the old things have passed away and new things have come. And John, in his first epistle, we'll look at this momentarily, speaks of what it means to walk in darkness and to walk in light. And so when Jesus says specifically that the one who follows him will not walk in darkness, it means that the light of life has come into their life. And they're no longer forsaken of God. They are now a friend of God because God is a friend to them, because he's revealed himself to them, that God has opened their eyes and caused them to embrace Christ as their Savior. And it means that their lives will be changed. They will not be the same. And, and just as Israel would follow the, the cloud of darkness, or the cloud of, uh, of light, and, and the, the, the other cloud during the day, the cloud by night, etc., God was leading them. But at night, there was a, a, a fiery cloud, and they would follow him. And that's the, they, they would, wherever the, the cloud went, they would go. They were wandering in the wilderness, and that's, that's how God led them. And, and that's, it's a picture. And, that's one of those things that Nick Batsig in his Biblical Theology of Light and Darkness unpacks for you in that article that I provided. But there are all sorts of ways in which God has described light in the scriptures as a way of God's leading, his directing, and his ultimately delivering his people. The third aspect, uh, at the bottom of page two, we talked about the proclamation, we talked about the problem, we talked about the promise. Uh, but there is a, a pretense. Uh, now, this is the last paragraph on page two. And this is what Jesus says about his enemies. His enemies were those who were trying to undermine the, the saving message of the gospel. They were trying to undermine the, the authenticity of Christ. They were trying to assail his profession and undo him. And they had pretended wisdom, but they were ultimately ignorant of God. There was a time when the leaders came to him and they said, that, that, what's your authority? Uh, you're speaking on your behalf. And Jesus says, I am speaking on my behalf. But I have another who also bears witness. And, and of course, you have the, the uh, proclamation in the scriptures that two witnesses, right? The Father also bears witness of the Lord Jesus. And all you have to do is think back to what happened at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. And, and there were Pharisees that were there during the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember what happened? This is my son. You know, this is my son. And the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And, and so the, the Father bears witness of the Son. And Jesus says, but you don't know the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And so the, the authenticity of the claim of Jesus, he needs no one to corroborate his claims. But he did have one to corroborate his claims, and that was the testimony of the Father. And, of course, there were the signs that he, that he, uh, that he uh, committed, uh, demonstrated. Page 3. There is a, a call, to, in the third paragraph down, there is a, a call to respond. And I think each of us needs to, to wrestle with this. And I'll just read this. Let us leave nothing uncertain that concerns our everlasting salvation. Christ, the light of the world, is for us as well as for others if we humbly follow him, cast our souls upon him, and become his disciples. Let us not, like thousands, waste our lives in doubting and arguing and reasoning, but simply follow 
the man that says, I must first understand everything before I become a Christian will die in his sins. Let us begin by following, and then we shall find light. And so there's, we, we have to take Jesus at his word. There will always be questions that remain in our mind. There will always be points that we need to ferret out and to study. But what he calls us to do is to submit ourselves to him, to surrender our lives to him, to recognize that he is who he claimed he is. And, um, and so there's always in, in, in a church uh, those who are outside of Christ, not always, but typically. And, and so the, the, the call for all of us is, are, are you following Christ? Have you submitted your life to the light of the world? And, and if you haven't, then there's no better time than today than to do that and to submit yourself to him. There is no hope outside of following the, the light of Christ. So if you have questions about that, we need, to, we need to talk about that. We'd be delighted to talk about that and just clarify what it means to, to truly believe in the Lord Jesus in a saving way. Just as an aside, it depends on what your version of the scriptures you're using, if you're using the authorized version or the New American Standard or the ESV or, or CSB or one of the others. There is this episode of the, the, um, the woman caught in adultery, and it begins in John 7, 53 in our Bibles, and it goes to John 8, verse 12. And there are two schools of thought on, on, the, uh, on this passage. There are those who say that in, in, in some cases you'll find it in brackets. some cases you'll find a text note in your margin saying that, that this passage is disputed. I, I, I don't have the time to, to go into the argument for the textual authority of John 8, uh, 1 through 12, or John 7:53 to 8:12. Um, but there are good men on both sides. Uh, and, and it really, I don't think that it necessarily shapes our understanding of, of how we look at uh, Jesus' statement in John 8, 12, that he's the light of the world. Um, I'm inclined to take it at face value, but, but there are those who have other points of view. But it's, it's not something that we can unpack today, and, and frankly, it may not be something that we'll ever completely understand this side of, of heaven. But this is that passage uh, where there are those who, who look at it as maybe a later edition. I simply point that out to you because it's right in the middle of our passage. We're looking at John 7, and we're going to look at, at John 7 and 8 today. Top of page 4, kind of to drill down. I mentioned earlier that John's um, use of light and darkness is very profound. It is, I use the term thematic because it is... Uh, a, a metaphor that he uses under the inspiration of the Spirit to describe the environment, the spiritual environment of the age. And John's Gospel uses the term light 16 times. That's more than the other Gospels. We call them the Synoptics. The Synoptics Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is in a class all by itself. Uh, but John uses the word light 16 times. The other three Gospels use the word light combined 13 times. So John was very fond of using the word light. But even from his prologue, this opening section of John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, there are two ways of understanding comprehend. One would be that they did not understand and grasp it, and that is true. And the other one is literally it can be taken that they did not overcome it, that they did not wrestle with it and, and win. And both of those meanings are, are, are very scriptural. It's not entirely clear, but it's one of those words that could go either way or both ways. But the, uh, 
Uh, the darkness did not comprehend it. But you can see right off the bat in John's Gospel, he's talking about the most intense conflict of the ages, that, that light has come into the world, and, and it came into the world in, an, in the midst of darkness, and the darkness is battling with the light. And so who's the prince of darkness? The enemy. And, and, and so what's the nature of an, an unsaved person's soul? They're, they're in darkness. Their eyes need to be opened. And so when we, we look at this whole metaphor of light and darkness, it's the most profound and far-reaching message that we can ever grasp. We need to understand we live in a world of darkness, and, and God has to open our eyes. He has to take away the, the veil from our eyes so that we can see the light. Because apart from that, we'll remain just like those who challenge Jesus. But there came a man sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Not a light, but the light, so that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This is John's role. He came to point to Jesus. And, and there's the light. And, and so he was identifying it. And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so this, this blazing inferno of truth is Jesus Christ. And it's blazing. It's, true. it's right there in public display, all for all to see. And yet, not all saw it. Why didn't they see it? Because their eyes were not open. Who has to open their eyes? God has to open your eyes. And, and maybe someone's eyes are not open today. Maybe you've not embraced Jesus Christ. And, and so we pray that if there's anyone that, that whose eyes, even at this point, have not really been open to see Jesus Christ for all that he is, that God would in his mercy. If we call that regeneration. We hope we, for, for God to take eyes that are closed and open. Anyone here who's, who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has opened your eyes. He's caused the light to penetrate your soul. He's caused you to come to the light, to follow the light, and to submit to the light. John 3, 19 to 21, it follows on that, that wonderful passage, John three sixteen, about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that the one who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then a few verses later, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And what happened? The men loved the darkness rather than the light. Is that tragic? It is tragic. That's exactly what takes place. It was true in the first century. It's been true since creation. It's after the fall, after the fall. And it's true today. For their deeds were evil. John 5, uh, just a, a passage about John, the witness of John the Baptist. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That's, that's the statement about the Savior. John 8, 12. This is the passage we're looking at today, or top of page 5. The light of the world. And this is in the context of one of the three mandatory pilgrimage feasts of Israel. There were three. There was Passover slash unleavened bread, spring harvest, uh, a spring festival. Then there was the feast of uh, Pentecost, uh, 50 days later, uh, that was a mandatory observance. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. It, it depends on what tradition you are, Sukkot or Sukkot. It depends on if you're Ashkenazi or Sephardic on how you pronounce that. I, I call that Sukkot, but some say Sukkot. But, uh, but, but the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and those were mandatory pilgrimage feasts. And God did amazing things in each of these. These were times when all of Israel had to come to Jerusalem. And, and think about what God did in each of those mandatory pilgrimage feasts. What happened at Passover? Jesus was given for us. 
What happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out. What happened at, at Tabernacles? Wait and see. That's where we are right now. We're in John 7. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Sukkot. Um, but uh, so uh, that's where we are. That's the setting, that the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, think of how poignant this is for, for Jesus to deal with a blind man. And, and then he says, well, I am in the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is dealing with a physiological darkness that he heals. And then he deals, and then he says, I am the light of the world. He's always communicating spiritual truth in the midst of various sets of circumstances. And in every case, he's talking about God has revealed himself in me. That's what Jesus is saying. That if you want to see the Father, look at me, because I, I and the Father are one. And, and he's always speaking in a context of darkness. And we have to get that if we're going to understand John 8, 12. It's this constant drumbeat of spiritual darkness, opposition, adversarial approach, the, the deepest conflict in all of creation. And it's a spiritual war that is going on. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, John 11, 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And he's going to unpack that in, the gospel, in, the, in John's first epistle. And then he, for Jesus in, in John 12, I've reproduced the entire context for you, but John 12 in three different verses of that section, you can go over to page 6. Um, I just reproduced for you the entire context so that you could read it and, and not take the verses uh, in isolation. You need, to, you need to see how these fall in context. But John 30, uh, 35, verse 35, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Now, that's true on a physical level, and it is profoundly true on a spiritual level. The one who walks in darkness, when, when, when Jesus says, does not know where he goes, someone who has not embraced the light and has not come to Christ does not know where they're headed. And their outcome is, is dire, to say the least. It is hell. And that's, that's a place of great darkness. And, and so the one in, in, in the walks in darkness does not know where he goes. And that's true on multiple levels. They don't know where they're going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may be sons of light. And then later in this section, in, in verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That's why Jesus came, to reveal God and so that he might deliver us from darkness, so that he might bring us into the light. So in the Gospel of John, 16 uses, and you can see the theme that, that, that is being unpacked here. But, but in his first epistle, <clears throat> top of page 7, he uses the term light in five occasions. First uh, John 1 speaks of the character of God himself. Now remember that John in his Gospel has recorded the statement of Jesus that I am the light of the world. In First John 1, God is light. And so do you see the connection that's being made? For God to be light, and Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. He's God incarnate. He's, he's, he's God incarnate. He is light in the world, and he is the light of the world, and he is the light for the world. And in him there is no darkness at all, completely holy, completely righteous, no sin at all. He is our high priest, who is holy and harmless and undefiled. And if we say we have fellowship and walk in the darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. And so darkness is associated with lying. It's associated with a, a complete absence of truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. And so light is associated with being with God and being with others who know God. And so believers walk in the light together. And, and we don't walk in the darkness. We walk in the light. First John 2 the, the darkness is passing away, two times it's used in this passage, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brothers in the darkness until now. Now, what you should be thinking about, and we'll certainly get into this in, in uh, James two fourteen to 26, but there's already been an, an intimation of this in the previous sermons, but it's, it's entirely possible to profess a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to have a faith that does not save. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so the faith that saves is always accompanied by a changed life. Yes, we will sin. We sin way too often, but we, we will sin. But the, the tra- trajectory of our life will be that we will walk in the light, that we will love uh, the God's people, that we will not hate God's people. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So in terms of a transition, uh, to what we're looking at in, in this passage. Now we're at the bottom of page 7. But the Pharisees challenged Jesus about who he is. They, they, in, in John eight thirteen, after he had made this tremendous proclamation, I am the light of the world, the one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him and said, you're testifying about yourself. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. And Jesus said, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. I need no corroborating witness. I'm God. I'm I'm truth. I'm truth incarnate. I I don't need a second voice to come to my aid to to attest to the veracity of what I'm saying. I'm I'm making a statement. But just so you'll know, it it says in verse 17, Jesus has an incredible way of, of turning the tables on his accusers. And he does it so often. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about himself. And they would acknowledge that he was testifying. And the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your Father? Now remember, they they thought that that Jesus came into the world through normal procreation. They, They certainly didn't embrace the truth of the virgin birth. But Jesus answers, he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But they didn't know Jesus, and because they didn't know Jesus, they didn't know the father. So the setting, again, in this immediate passage that we're looking at, top of page 8, is Jesus is literally surrounded by unbelief, literally surrounded by a sea of unbelief. Who didn't believe him? Three groups are identified in this immediate context. His own brothers did not believe him. John 7 says that, they, that Jesus was walking in Galilee, the, the northern part of Israel, because he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, the, the, the religious authorities, were seeking to kill him. He, he knew that. Jesus was not afraid of giving his life. He came into the world to give his life, but he had to do certain things first. And so there was a time, and, and he makes this statement on a number of occasions that his time was not yet come. He was a complete master of his timing. But the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was near. It was that season. 
And so what would people do? This member earlier, I mentioned that there were three mandatory pilgrimage feasts, and this was one of them. And so they were expected to go to Jerusalem, to Judea. And his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They were baiting Jesus, essentially. They they were prodding him to do something. They they were aware that there was an adversarial relationship, but they they were taunting him. Verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. That's sad, but it's true. They, they did later, but, but not even his brothers were believing. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here or, here or come, but your time is always opportune. What's their time? Their time is it's time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. It, it's always time. It, turn, repent of your sin. Turn to me. Embrace me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. That's verse 9. He would then leave after they had departed for Jerusalem, and he would make a pilgrimage to the, to the south, to Jerusalem, on his own, without his brothers. And... Um, then we turn to the crowd, and, uh, and where are we now? We're, we're in Jerusalem now, and, and so there is this crowd. The crowd is there because, again, it's a mandatory pilgrimage feast. The, the, the Jerusalem was swollen with, with the pilgrims, and it was an incredible sight. There, there were all these booths that were built. There were people from all over Israel that had come, all over the Mediterranean area that had come. It was, it was a, they were there. It was a celebratory feast. It was a joyous time. An incredible, happily, happy time. They were celebrating God's faithfulness to them in the exile, uh, in, in, the, in the wilderness that, that God had provided for them. And so when you would see these, these booths, these sukkahs as we call them, and, and we built a few, Diane and I. We, we built them at various churches where we've been part of over the years. And they're typically decorated in a very festive fashion. And, and you know, people will actually go live in them for a while. And... Uh, that's why it's just, you know, a fall harvest, not a winter harvest. But they would, they would live in them for a while, and they would be celebrating God's provision for them in, in the wilderness. But the, the crowd, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, he's a good man. That's a somewhat innocuous statement, but that's the statement that many will make today. He's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray, unbelief at every level. And then the Jewish authorities in John 7, verse 13. No one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So we're going to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles because it's important for us we're going to understand the, the light of the world, that we understand what's taking place in the Feast of Tabernacles. And so if you would, flip over to page 9. And uh, I'm just going to mention something briefly, and then we'll, we'll get into the actual mechanics, the actual way in which the Feast of Tabernacles was, was observed. In this middle of the page, there's a paragraph that says the light metaphor was ancient in Israel's history, and you can read this on your own, but, but it's actually unpacked for you in this article by Nick Batzig at the end. What I'd like to do is, is now focus on the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So page 10, you see, this is how we cover 18 pages. I, I told you we would do this, but... Um, what actually took place in the Feast of Tabernacles? 
Now, my Jewish friends know exactly what took place in the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, it was, a, it was an incredible time. There were these lights that were, that were lit in, the, in the, the area of the temple. And uh, a priest would light, some people say three, some people say four, but there were multiple huge torches. And they were, they, you, could, you could light, it lit up the whole area. And it was like a bonfire on top of a, a telephone pole. And, and they would take uh, the, these um, uh, pieces of clothing that they were discarded and they would use them for wicks and they would soak them in, in oil and they would light them and they would keep them lit. And, and it, was, it was just uh, the most luminous thing that you could imagine. And there were multiple of these and, and the whole area was, was covered with light. That was the nature in which they, they, they actually observed this. And the whole temple compound was, uh, was lit up. Like, like, a, like a, a big parking lot display with all the lights. You, you could see exactly what was going on. Even in the middle of the night, you could see what was going on in front of you because these, these huge candelabra were, were burning in the darkness. And these brilliant candelabra were lit. This is a very interesting thing. Uh, the brilliant candelabra were lit only at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. There is dispute as to the number of nights on which the illumination took place. But, but understand this. This is very important. There is no dispute as to the fact that at the close of the feast, they were not lit. In the absence of the lights, and this is when, John, when Jesus makes a statement in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world, they were no longer lighting these enormous candelabra. And so he stood in the darkness and he said, I am the light of the world. And he, always, he was a master at using contrasts. So the lights were no longer lit, and he was the light. And he said, I am the light of the world. And they understood exactly what, what that meant. There was no question. Of, the, the Pharisees could not possibly have misunderstood the, uh, the, the profundity of his statement when he said, I'm the light of the world, because it was a very messianic concept. And he had already made statements about the fact that he's the bread of life. He's already said in John 7 that, that out of him would throw rivers of water. He's already said, I came to give eternal life. They've made a number of statements that were unmistakable. And when he stood in the middle of the darkness uh, on that day and he said, I am the light of the world, that was the most poignant, most profound statement that he could ever make. It was dramatic. And that's why we have to understand not only the spiritual context, but the physical context of this statement in John 8. The spiritual context is battle. The spiritual context is opposition, unbelief, adversarial fighting against him, rejection of the truth, false statements, people undermining the truth. All, that's the spiritual environment. It is a quagmire of darkness. And the physical setting is, is equally important for us to grasp, and that was these candelabra were no longer being lit on this last day, the great day of the feast. And, and so it was a Sabbath observance, and so they didn't light the, 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 the candelabra on that day. And so that's the day that Jesus chose. He could have said this statement at any point, understand that. He chose the time, and he chose the place, and he chose the message. And he said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So they understood what was, what was going on. The, the Pharisees, as we mentioned earlier, challenged his statement that you're making this statement about yourself. And this article, an excerpt from David Guzik, makes a, a good comment. And that is that 
when the light is burning, the light doesn't have to attest. It's, it's self-evident. If, if there's a light that's burning and someone says there's no light, the, the light is proof, right? It, but, but, but only a person who has no eyes to see can look at a light and say there's no light there. And that's exactly the environment that we're there. They had no eyes to see. They had repressed. The, the, the truth was not in them. And so people today who are outside of Christ, you need to understand that they're living in a world of darkness and they have no, no light in them. And so when we look at, at the way that the world is spinning around and, and the spiraling down, and so you, you need to understand that, that our, our leaders, uh, our neighbors, um, our authorities, uh, in many cases, are people without any light in them. And what do we expect of people with no light? Darkness. They don't, they don't see the truth. And, and so this point that, that David Guzik has made, make, and I bolded it, is light establishes its claim. Jesus' claim is self-evident. He stood right in front of them, and he did testify about himself. And he does so not by arguments, but by shining. Light must always be accepted for itself, and that notwithstanding the objections of the blind. He didn't need a corroborating statement. He had one. The Father testified right along with him, but Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Page 11. There's another very important aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles that helps us to understand how profound this really was. And there is something called the Great Hallel. When we say hallelujah, that's Yah is, is a Hebrew expression for God. And Hallel means praise. And so when we say hallelujah, you're, you're speaking Hebrew and you're saying praise God. So if you get excited about something and you say hallelujah, I just want you to know what you're saying. But it's, it's praise God. But there was something called the Great Hallel, and it was Psalm 113 through 118. And the Great Hallel was recited in a joyous fashion on a number of occasions. And one of those occasions in which it was recited was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, exactly this time. And it was recited on this, this last day, the great day of the feast. And there is an expression in Psalm 118, 25. This is in the second to the last paragraph on page 11. And we, we use the word Hosanna, right? Okay, we've had, how many of us have been in church and we've seen the little children coming down the center aisle with waving their palm branches and they're saying Hosanna. Hosanna is is a word that is a compound from the Hebrew that means save now. That, that was, that's literally where that expression came from. And so it was, it was this whole Hebrew expression, Hoshiana, is, is reduced down to this expression, Hosanna. And so when they would be saying in Psalm 118, you know, save now. Look, look at this paragraph, 118 through 25. I beseech thee, O Lord, save now. Think about what was taking place. Jesus was standing right in front of them. And he, said, and he was answering their question. He was, he was fulfilling their, their request. When they say, save now, Jesus was standing in front of them. And he says, that's why I came. I came to save. And then, middle of the darkness, he, he, there no more candelabra were burning, and he said, "I'm the light of the world." And so he comes, and he's fulfilling the, the, the request: "Would you save now?" This is part of that, that wonderful passage in Psalm 118, the, the last of the Hallel Psalms: "Save now." And that's exactly what he did. That's why he came uh, to to earth. 
Page 12, just uh, one final observation uh, about this uh, recitation of Psalm 118. I've reproduced uh, some of it for you. I'm I'm prone to to say this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I've I've been corrected on at least one occasion. That's not the right context. Okay, all right. Okay, fair enough. But uh, I'm not going to tell you who corrected me. You know the person who corrected me, but, but you've heard him preach. But, uh, but he corrected me, and I said, okay, point well taken. I'm still going to say this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it. But that's, that's part of this. But the day is of God giving us the Messiah. And so verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Hababashim Adonai. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now look at verse 27. The Lord is God. And what does he say? And he has given us light. And then what else does it say? Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. What would happen? That was Jesus. Ultimately, he was the sacrifice that would be bound to the altar, so to speak. And he came as the light. And he came to, to give himself, to deliver those in darkness from a, a, a damning darkness and to give them the light of the world so that they might be able to, to walk in the light henceforth and forevermore. So we can say with, with the psalmist, you are my God, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. John Stott, just in closing, I'll just share this. this. Jesus put himself in a moral category in which he was absolutely alone. Everybody else was in darkness. He was the light of the world. Everybody else was hungry. He was the the bread of life. Everybody else was thirsty. He could quench their thirst. That's our Savior. So it's important that we see the way in which he proclaimed himself, the spiritual setting, the physical setting, the timing. It was high drama when he stood there in the temple courtyard and he made that statement. He cried out, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.